Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So this will be kind of our last week out of rhythm. We've had about six weeks out of Matthew, so hopefully you've caught your breath. We're going to jump back into Matthew chapter 7 next week. This week we're going to look at just uh, really a passage that I hope shapes the way we approach our life together as a church, even as we think through some things this year. So I'm going to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, no doubt, after reading through that passage, you expect us to launch into a discussion of how these spiritual gifts function in the life of the church, and I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not what we're going to do today. We're actually going to talk about the community of the church and how these kind of gifts actually function, how we should function in relation to one another. And so we're going to see this as we walk through this passage together, that true community is unity in the midst of diversity. True community is unity in the midst of diversity. I want to um, 
kind of walk through two scenarios with you this morning as we begin. So uh, recently, my family sat down to a meal, and as they sat down, they no doubt noticed uh, that the meat on their plates was pretty burned. Well, this is because uh, I was grilling for dinner that night, and I don't normally do this, but I stepped away for a few minutes, and I came back, and there was a little uh, a grease fire that started in the bottom of the grill, and by the time I came back, the, the outside of the chicken was all charred. And so I'm like, oh, great, you know, and so uh, Liz is inside kind of fixing some things, and I'm outside putting the fire out and literally like scraping the, the, the charred burn part off the, uh, off the outside of the chicken, and you know, maybe by the time you get to 20, 30, 40, you're okay with that, but I know I've got two, five, and eight, and like burned chicken is just not, well, it's not anyone's idea of a good time, but it particularly is not going to go down well. So I'm trying to kind of rescue the meal. Well, we sit down for dinner, and I've got to admit, there were some comments made about the, uh, the state of, of, of the burned meat, but everyone kind of, kind of rolled with it and, and, and ate it. In fact, no one said, hey, take this back, I don't like it. Or no one said, hey, I'm not going to eat that because we sit down at a meal. Uh, the truth is that we all participate in it. So I mean, in a meal like that, I'm kind of outside grilling and Liz is inside maybe fixing a couple sides. The kids are setting the table. And when I get there, you know, it's likely, in fact, this is often the case, that, that the napkin's not quite in the right spot. You know, it's kind of sitting above the plate instead of next to the plate. Or maybe even, hey, uh, we, uh, so-and-so needs a fork. It's just kind of one of those things you kind of roll with it because it's a family meal. On the other hand, if, uh, if you go out to eat for lunch today and, and the waiter or waitress brings you your, your meal and, puts, and, and your chicken is just burned black on the outside, you're going to say, what? Hey, I can't eat that. Take that back. And you don't expect to, I don't know, bring your own silverware to the table. Or you don't expect to refill your own drink. You expect to, you go there and you expect at some level you're paying for a level of service. You know, I'm not, I'm not compensating. Actually, I'm highly compensating my children and paying for their well-being and their entire lives. But, you know, we're not even going to go there as parents right now. If you've got teenage children, you do that, right? I pay, I pay for that phone. You know, I need to know what's on that phone. But, but the truth is there's a different expectation when you come to a family meal and when you sit down at a restaurant. And what I'd like to say this morning is a church is a lot more like a family meal than it is like walking into a restaurant. In other words, there aren't kind of consumers and providers. The truth is in the, we're all consumers and we're all providers. So we come and we, we all labor in this together. Now, as you look around you this morning, whether it's in this service or in our second service, the truth is that the makeup of our congregation is quite a bit different than it was even a couple of years ago. Uh, there are some people here who weren't here then. There are people who aren't here who were here. Some have uh, gone elsewhere, or some uh, people, like uh, Charles Otherson, some are just no longer with us, period. And so as we look at this, the, the truth is that transitions like that bring with them growth pains. And growth pains affect our relationships with each other. They affect how we feel when we sit down and it's time to eat the chicken together. And it affects how irritated we are when the chicken's a little burnt. It affects when the, when the napkin's not in the right place. These growth pains kind of bring pressure into our relationships. And so as we walk through this passage together this morning, I'd like us to see how this passage shapes our view of our relationships with each other. And the first thing, and frankly, it's the foundational and thus perhaps the most important thing here this morning is this, that we share one spirit. We share one spirit. So Paul tells us in the first verse what exactly his topic is here. Concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a little more famous passage than 1 Corinthians 12. You uh, hear it read perhaps at weddings or at different times because it's, it's the famous love chapter. Love does, love does not. Just love, love, love over and over and over again. And it introduces the idea of the relate, way relate, we relate to each other. 
But 1 Corinthians 12 is a little bit different in that it addresses a broader topic, and that is it's kind of a biology lesson, or more specifically, an anatomy lesson. In other words, what's the anatomy of the church? How is it made up? And, And what we see here is that the church is one body with many body parts, but it has one head. And so the church function, the body of Christ functions as the head, Christ, through the Spirit of God, carries energy or the lifeblood, the ministry of the Spirit of God, out to the different body parts of the church. But the thing that's central in all this, the thing that connects us to the the beating heart of the church, or in this metaphor, the head of the church, is the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, the essence of Christian community, the essence of loving one another, the essence of our relationships is a vital connection through the Spirit of God to each other. The essence of Christian community is a connection through the Spirit of God to one another. Well, verses 4, 5, and 6 highlight for us both the diversity of all these body parts as well as the unity of the body's head. We have one head, verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So it's the Spirit of God that gives the body of Christ the ability to function in ways that serve one another. You might, you might say it this way. If Christ is our head, the Spirit is the, the, the heart pumping the lifeblood of the power of God out into the life of the church. So no matter what your gift is or gifts are, no matter what your background is, if you are a person who calls yourself a follower of Jesus, your power comes from one place, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. In other words, if you're not connected to the Spirit of God, you have no power. You're you're like a light switch without any connection to some central power source. The Spirit is our power. So the basis for the unity of the church isn't that we we come together and we decide we like one another or that we come together and we do things a particular way. The basis for the unity of the church is this foundational truth. We share one spirit. There is one spirit that lives in all of God's people. Now the difficulty with this is some of us don't like that. Some of us maybe we don't like those people or sometimes we don't like the set of gifts that God has given us. You know, if we could design it differently, we would, we would. But your difficulty is that if you don't like the way you function within the life of the church, your argument, well enough for the people around you, but sadly for you, isn't with other people. It's with God himself. Verse 21 says, because the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. So as we sat at at our dinner table uh, this this week and, and we were talking about this and asked a little kid, you know, why do you have five fingers on each hand? Or why do you have five toes on each foot? What's the answer? Well, because God made me that way. Well, that's pretty easy for us to see in terms of we've got eyes that see and ears that hear. Or if you're missing a finger, you've got an eye that doesn't see. You know, at some level, that, that's a result of, of God's creation and God's creative power. But it's a little bit more difficult for us to accept the fact that that's also true in the way we function and relate in the life of the church. You see, everyone desires community. I mean, we're all looking for a place to fit, a place to belong, aren't we? I mean, even if you're a little bit of a loner or you're an introvert, you want a safe place. You want some place where you can belong, some place that that can be home for you, a safe place, a safe space where, where you can go and rest and find comfort. But what God's Word teaches us is that you cannot have meaningful, lasting community apart from sharing the same spirit. 
And so the question is, if this spirit is, is the lifeblood, if it's the power of God running out into the life of the church, how is it that we get a connection to this spirit? And what Romans 8 tells us is that we get our connection to the spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when this happens, when we place our faith in Christ, the Spirit whispers to us that God is our Father. So there's this kind of three-way connection to the Spirit of God. Faith in Christ, Spirit empowering, and it connects us to the idea that God is our dad. God is the one who, who looks out for us and watches for us. So when we talk about church family or the family of God... We know that we are in the family of God when we have the Spirit of God, and we get the Spirit of God through faith in Christ. So at one level, we're talking to people that have placed their faith in Christ, but kind of a preliminary question for us is this morning, have you placed your faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Have you reckoned with the fact that God made this world good, but it's been broken through sin, and we're all born into this world, sinners condemned under the law of God? And recognizing that you have no hope apart from placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you. If you're here this morning and that is not your story, would you consider placing yourself in this story, embracing the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Would you turn from your sin and trust Him? We share one spirit, and we share one spirit through faith in Christ. But secondly, we'll see that we have many members. Now, Paul isn't bragging about church size here. Hey, we got a lot of members in our church. That's kind of how we would do it, you know, how many members we have. But he's talking rather about the diversity of people in the church. Verse 12 kind of serves as a hinge in the passage. You've got this introduction, one spirit. He works his, his, his power out in all of these ways. And then we've got the human body and the body of Christ, the church. The body is one, yet has many members. All the members are one body. Well, the word translated members over and over throughout here is also sometimes here translated parts. So we see that in verse 20. So uh, verse 15, you kind of have this, this conversation between the various parts of the body. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, <laughs> it's still a part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. So one spirit means that we are one body, but one body has nothing to do with uniformity. In other words, any idea of church says that we all look the same, act the same, comb our hair the same, wear the same things, have the same rules, misunderstands what Paul is teaching here. One body isn't about uniformity, rather it is unity in diversity. In other words, Paul is telling us that that a biblical view of the church is one that produces a degree of variety and diversity beyond what we're actually comfortable with on our own. Now, the groups, the various groups that he uh, addresses here, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free people, actually, believe it or not, have much greater differences than the people sitting in this room. But there is a degree of diversity here that's, that's beyond what these people are comfortable with. And truthfully, for us, it's a little bit that way too, isn't it? I mean, there, there are people here that have Maybe different ways that they raise their kids or different hairstyles or different approaches to life or, I don't know, different jokes they like or different movies they like. And, and we, we all have different things. So how is it that the diversity of the body parts, the diversity of the body of Christ, displays itself in a church? Well, you see the power of the Spirit of God when God brings people who are nothing alike together. God does this as we preach the gospel and as we love one another. 
I mean, see, one evidence of the gospel certainly is people coming to faith in Christ, but one evidence of growth in the gospel is people who are nothing alike, people who don't share the same hobbies, people who don't share the same dreams, people who don't share the same age, even people who don't share the same political views, believe it or not, people who don't share the same approach to life, music preferences, even the same skin color. When people like that worship together, that's unity in the midst of diversity, and it's way better than uniformity. See, uniformity is, is kind of logically explainable. But unity among people who don't have the same perspective on life, other than one thing, we are united by faith in Jesus Christ and the same Spirit lives on us all, that's when you see the power of the Spirit of God displayed in the life of the church. That's way better than the alternative. Now, this isn't diversity for diversity's sake or because it's some buzzword. But diversity is the fruit of gospel-drenched, God-focused, Jesus-loving, others-serving body of Christ. And it displays itself, uh, Ephesians chapter 3 says, in the multifaceted, or another way of translating that is multicolored wisdom of God. I mean, that kind of diversity and unity is something that only God can do. It's a display that people look at and say, what is going on there? Because people that outside of those walls should just be at one another's throats in Christ are united. In, in Christ, they have all these things that are different, and yet Christ unites them. We share one spirit, but we have all these many members. I mean, don't miss the beauty of the body of Christ around you. It's easy at one level, to want a church to grow. It's harder at another level to learn how to love people that are different than you. It's easy for us to want to see God at work here, and it's a little bit harder for me to learn how to love someone who has, I don't know, just a completely different musical background, and so they identify with something completely different than I identify with. That, that's, a, that's a little bit hard for me. Someone who's speaks a different language. Someone has a different color of skin, different socioeconomic background. Well, these things are easy to kind of drill into because they're kind of, I don't know, at some level, hot button issues in culture or church. But sometimes the truth is that the hardest person to love, the hardest diversity to love, is a person who's here and whose gifts just flow in the opposite direction of mine. So there are people here who are tuned toward compassion, you know, you kind of got one of those bleeding hearts. You see it, and you're going to meet it. And there are other people who are, who are more cautious. And our tendency is for the, the cautious people to look at the, the, kind, the, the, the person with a compassionate heart and say, they, they are just careless, and, and they don't really care how we steward our resources. Or for people who are more, uh, more compassionate and, and always out, out, out to look at these other people and say, well, they're just they're inward focused, and they're selfish, and they're, they're protectionistic. But the truth is life is a lot more complex than that, isn't it? And what happens is we have to learn and develop relationships with each other. And as this happens, I, I bet often as it happens and you develop a relationship with someone that views life, church, family in something very different from you, as you get to know that person, you'll often find that something different than you suspect is making that person tick is actually making them tick. When you get to know the person, you see the power of the Spirit of God. You see, his power shows up. When we love spending time with people whose personality and preferences flow against the grain for us, the Spirit does that in us. We share one Spirit. We have many members. We're one body. Verses 14 and 20 serve as bookends saying similar things, but says them quite differently. The body doesn't consist of one member, but many. Verse 14, verse 20, as it is, there are many parts 
yet one body. All right, I'm just going to do something for a minute. And if you're not comfortable looking, you can just think. But, but just look around you. Now, don't weird anyone out or stare at anyone. But, 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 but just, just consider the, the people around you. I mean, these people are part of the same family. They're part of the same body. We are one. And because we are one, we love and serve each other. I mean, maybe you saw that person you can't stand. It's one body. Maybe someone insulted you or hurt your child. One body. The person who used to be your friend who you can't stand anymore. One body. The person you just don't understand and have no idea how to connect with. One body. Old people, one body. Young people, it's one body. Rich, poor, black, white, brown, American, some other nationality, it's one body. If you respond to conflict or difficulty by thinking that, that you can simply avoid the other person, Paul actually says quite the opposite. He says, you need that person. True community must be a ministry of every body part to the whole body. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What he says is here, there's a temptation in all of us to think, I don't need that hand. I don't need that ear. And when he says, no, 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 the part that you think you don't need, that's the part that you really need. So how do we know when the different parts of the body are working as God's spirit intends that they should? You see, the body of Christ shows true unity in the midst of its diversity when all the members are so united to Jesus that they have no division from each other. See, what happens is we focus, is we focus more on each other than on Christ, but if we're united to Christ, if we are one in Christ, we are one body. Verse 25 says we all have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one is honored, all rejoice. We show that we are the body of Christ when we so love others that their pain is our pain and their joy is our joy. When that happens, we truly understand verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. All right, we've walked through the passage, and now I want to take just a few minutes to look to some very specific applications. So what we're going to do here is look at three misconceptions about community and how it works in the life of the church. And then following that, we're going to kind of look at three commitments for community here at Ashley River. So the first uh, misconception is community by similarity alone. So it's not that similarity doesn't matter. In other words, if you're a family with young kids, it's helpful to have someone else walking through the same thing. Or if you're a family with teenagers, you know, every teen wants friends. But it's easy for churches to structure every program by age or life stage or interest. And of course, we're not against targeted ministry. But the whole point here is here that similarity can't be the core of how you approach your church family. It can't be the core of our discipleship ministry. We are one body. That's the whole point of the, the, the different ethnicities. That's the whole point of the different ages and the different preferences. So community by similarity alone. A second misconception is consumer-driven community. 
I mean, we live in a culture where if you're a consumer, you have rights. I mean, it's like if, if you have a cell phone, you know, you, you probably once every couple months you click off on and agree to something that most of us don't read because it's pages and pages and pages of legalese. That's because you have rights and you're signing away those rights for your cell phone. We have, a, we have a, a, a magazine that we call Consumer Reports, if magazines still exist. And in a culture where our thinking is completely driven by this, even the most scripturally devoted churches are affected by this consumerism. And so when we walk into church and we view the church as providers to meet our needs, we're misunderstanding at its base what Paul says about the church here. And that is what we talked about at the beginning. We're not consumers walking in to be provided for. We're all providers sharing in this family meal, this family service together. So we have needs, but our thoughts and emotions should be pointed toward how we should serve others rather than the kind of service we receive. A third misconception is community without commitment. Our culture fears authority and fears commitment at one level. So it's easy for even very committed Christians to misunderstand the importance of covenant commitment in a local church through membership and the importance of the life and services of the church. You cannot have true community if you aren't committed to a community of faith. It's like hoping for all the benefits of marriage without actually committing in marriage. So what is commitment and accountability that's fueled by grace? And so I want to talk about three commitments in our community. And the first is a commitment to the corporate community of the church. In other words, when people today hear discipleship and they hear community, they often think small groups. Well, small groups are an important part of discipleship. But they can't truly replicate what we see here, this kind of, kind of diversity and unity in, in a body-wide kind of community. It must be a ministry of every body part to the whole body. So what is it that makes a church a church? It's a weekly gathering of the entire congregation for worship. So part of your discipleship is making it a priority to be here each week for worship. Not because you, know, you want to get more people in the door, but because we're committed to one another, committed to this kind of community. What happens is as, that your commit, as, you, as your commitment to worshiping with the body of Christ grows, your connectedness to the body of Christ also grows. So the gathering of the entire church for worship is the best time to experience uh, this diversity as God designed it. But secondly, there's a commitment to spiritually intentional relationships over programmatic community. So attending worship is absolutely essential, but if all you do is attend a worship service, the church won't feel like family. Now, people come to a church at some level because they like the vibe or a, a worship experience or a style of preaching or a style of music. But people get committed to a church when it starts to feel like family, when it starts to feel like relationships that dig down deep. Discipleship is people helping people take one step closer to Jesus. And when the church body feels like family, you want to share that with others. You want to welcome people into that family. So ministries like Sunday school or Bible studies or Wednesday evening gatherings are places where you move from worship attendance to community. It's ways to build family-strong relationships. But even more than kind of these individual structures, we want to address the culture of community more than programs in our teaching, in our modeling, and in specific encouragement. A third commitment. A commitment to community that seeks to grow by conversion. In other words, we're thankful when God brings other people to our church from other local churches. My family came here from another local church. I've been a believer since I was a very young 
child. But we don't want to be a church that's characterized exclusively by or even primarily by transfer growth. In other words, our, our vision here isn't to make the other churches in Charleston smaller. It's to see the kingdom of God grow as people come to faith in Christ. Now, your mind may run to an event to draw people in, but I'd like to shift our focus a little bit from kind of event-driven evangelism to the idea that we're all front yard missionaries. Or, or the idea that, you know, whether you put it in the, in the schoolyard or at work or whatever, but, but like we are we're little gospel carriers. We're vessels carrying the gospel wherever we go. I mean, who's your disciple? Who's the person you're building a relationship with for the sake of the gospel? What non-Christians are you spending time with to lead them to Christ? You see, commitment to Christ isn't true commitment if we aren't sharing our faith with people who don't know him. Uh, a few years ago, uh, in, a, in a different congregation, I was uh, surprised one Sunday morning. We got, got a report. There was an older couple at church there, and uh, they had been in the emergency room that morning. That lady had a, the, the wife had a number of different physical trials she was going through, including um, early onset dementia and just some difficult things. I think she had fallen that morning, and they were in the ER. And so uh, I'm standing up like I did this morning, and, and uh, I'm saying, hey, pray for this family. And I look out, and I, just, I, I see them sitting there. I'm, I'm shocked by this because I know just like a couple of hours ago they were in the emergency room. And I was talking with this man. His name is Bill later that week, very sweet couple. And just, you know, seeing them go up and down steps or walk around, things that for me are very, I don't even give thought to, require a lot of effort for them. And I remember saying to him, man, it was so encouraging to see you here this morning. I didn't expect to see you because I heard you were in the ER, you know, just as the service was starting. And uh, he kind of got choked up a little bit. And he said, I'm here because I love my church. And when the church becomes that kind of place for us, when it becomes a source of grace and peace, when it becomes our safe place, when it's the place like, I could sleep right now, but I want to be at church. I could eat right now, but I want to be at church. I could go home and like rest up because I'm sore from my fall right now, but I want to be with my family. So the question for us is, does our life look like someone who has left the world behind to follow Jesus? Or does it look like someone who kind of pays a Sunday morning tax to God before getting on with the rest of my week? The people who find themselves most committed to the community of their church aren't people who decide, I'll go to church this morning. They're people who have decided long ago that they're going to be committed to the life of their local congregation. It's not a decision that you make on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Before we close, I want to address something that's difficult for all of us because this is true. If you've been a Christian for longer than a couple of weeks, this is true. That at some point in time, a church has disappointed you, neglected you, wounded you. And by a church, I mean people. It might be a pastor, it might be a deacon, it might be some other members there. And whether it's here or someplace else, it makes difficult for you to embrace it just freely, joyfully, and gladly. First of all, I want to say that that's, that's difficult. I've had that experience. I, I, I know it firsthand. It's, it's not an easy thing to work through. But as you do that, don't forget 
that what we're experiencing because we're in fallen, broken creation is also at some level fallen and broken. But it's also just the appetizer. So we're talking family meals, like the, the big meal, it's the marriage supper of the lamb coming one day in heaven. And on that day, there is no conflict. There is no brokenness. There won't be a single person there, even if it's the person right now in the world that you despise the most. When you see that person that day, it will make you happy. Because there's no more sin. There's no more conflict. There's no more division because Christ at that point has washed all of our wounds. He's healed all of our hurtness. He's healed all of our brokenness. And he's made us truly one in Christ. So we come today because it's just an appetizer, a reminder of the great meal that's coming. When we sit there and we know Jesus, as Paul says just a couple chapters later, 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and we know him face to face as we are known. And we don't fear that day because we are one in Christ and he has washed away all of our sins. Our garments are white like snow. So when you look around and you experience hurt, as is inevitable, if you've been married longer than a few hours, marriage is full of hurt, but it's full of forgiveness and grace. If you've got one that's going to look like Jesus in the church. And church life is that way too. So let's commit to loving one another this way. Let's commit to experiencing the power of the Spirit of God this way as we look forward to that day. It's just preparation for for the big family meal at the end of it all. So let's respond to God's word now in repentance, in faith. What habits in our lives is God's word confronting? How is God's word encouraging you? Let's talk to God about those things now, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute.